So Money Episode 680, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host, listener Steve Blivis. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to Ask Farnoosh on So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. In case you missed it, my financial course is now live. Very excited about this. It's called Master Your Money. Did this in partnership with Investopedia, which is the granddaddy of financial information on the internet. And they have a massive library of incredible courses. And this is the latest course to arrive. And really proud of this work. You know, this is something that I've always wanted to do just didn't really know how to get it all done. It's a lot of work and time and team effort in getting a course done. Everyone who has one, I'm very impressed with the fact that they're able to execute a successful course. And so I'm very fortunate that Investopedia came knocking on my door, asked me to partner with them to bring this course to the masses. And so a little bit more about Master Your Money. And I do have a special code for So Money listeners to get a discount. It is a nine-module course that you can have lifetime access to. It's going to teach you how to, of course, budget, save more, invest wisely, how to earn more money this year if that's on your to-do list. And it's not just a course with slides and voiceover. I get right in there. I talk to real people with real issues, try to help them with their financial questions in the moment, on the spot. So we try to keep it really conversational. You don't want the same boring stuff. You want information that you can use and that you can apply and that is entertaining maybe even to watch. So that is Master Your Money in a Nutshell. It's normally $99, but if you use the code FARNOOSH20, you can get 20% off. Now, to get to this course, go to Academy dot investopedia.com. That's academy.investopedia.com. Search for master your money, master your money, and use the code Farnoosh20 for 20% off. Not a bad way to start the new year, right? All right. So to our Ask Farnoosh session of the day, we have a very special co-host on the show and someone who shares an alma mater with me, Stephen Blivess. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am excited to participate. I'm excited to have you on the show. I understand that you are a fellow Nittany Lion, fellow Penn Stater. How did you first learn about So Money? Uh, I was looking around for podcasts on uh, personal finance and, and money issues because those are things that I'm always interested in learning more about. And you can't search iTunes for a podcast on personal finance and not find So Money. Well, that's nice to know. Thank you to iTunes for giving us some store love, putting us in the uh, personal finance section front and center. It's really thanks to listeners because we have over, I don't know, 550 reviews, something like that. That definitely helps as far as your 
algorithm, your your iTunes juice, as they say, getting in the store and getting good placement. It's a testament to how much people are listening and enjoying the show. Although I will say I got a one-star review recently and it is my fault. If any of you listened to the January 1st episode of Katya Beecham, uh, I was on vacation and unbeknownst to me, that episode uh, had the audio tracks overlapped. There was a technical glitch and those who listened to it the day that it went live experienced some terrible audio. I will be the first to admit, and I'm so sorry this happened. And it was, uh, I won't blame, I won't name who's at fault. Uh, I mean, really we're all at fault, all the whole team, because we should have really uh, triple checked it. But we caught some audio overlap late in the day as people were letting us know. And uh, one listener thought that the guest Katya was just cutting me off and being rude and that I had lost control of the interview when in fact she was a lovely guest and there was gaps in between our question and answers, but you didn't know it because the audio tracks were slipping. And so we fixed it, but it, by then it was probably too late for some listeners and it resulted in some, uh, one negative review on iTunes. That's actually how I found out. <laughs> so I had a heart attack uh, when that happened. And anyway, all this to say that you take the good with the bad. And I apologize if anyone is wondering about that episode, but I digress. Steve, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I understand that you are a lawyer and I know that sometimes law and finance intersect, they dovetail. Tell me a little bit more about your passions. Well, so I am a lawyer. Um, I practiced in New York City, actually, for the first uh, nine years or so doing all kinds of different things, um, both in municipal government and in private practice. And then I moved down to the D.C. area and I work for the District of Columbia government now. And um, my area now is labor relations. So I'm the go between between the union and management for the agency that I work for. Uh, and it's, you know, my 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 passion for personal finance has been something that I, I've always been interested in this. Um, I can remember from my earliest days, my dad and I listening to a radio broadcast on Saturday mornings in the Philadelphia area. This, this uh, columnist named Harry Gross, who people would call in and he would give them personal finance advice, how to, you know, how to approach paying off debt. How should I invest money? And I just always found that stuff really interesting. So kind of what's kept my interest. Well, thank you to Harry Gross. And actually, I'm from the Philly area, and I do recall that show. Imagine if there were podcasts for all of us as we were growing up as kids and teens and even just maybe 10 years ago. And so what I'm hearing from you, Steve, is it sounds like your parents were really proactive and cognizant of trying to relay some good financial principles to really try to inform you as much as they could uh, in a way when you were a child. Is there something that you are grappling with still? Are you looking at 2018 and hoping to uh, master some aspect of your finances that you haven't yet? I'm just trying to, you know, figure out with the with the in the new year how to, you know, redirect my investment savings. So I'm making sure that I'm, you know, well balanced and have everything, you know, in the right direction. So I've been thinking about going to a um, financial advisor. I have not yet done that. Um, I kind of do everything on my own and it's it's a lot of work. So I've been thinking about going to a financial advisor. 
Um, and I've listened to your podcast before, so I know you you have always have great advice about finding one. Yeah, I mean, the new year is a great time to start looking at ways that you can support your financial life with resources, whether that's real p- other people, apps, websites, services, a course, and just a shameless plug, my financial course is live now on Investopedia. Use the code Farnoosh20 for 20% off. In all seriousness, finding a financial advisor, we've talked about this on the show a lot. And I think that you know you're ready to work with someone when you want someone to help you with the time commitment aspect to managing your money, making a lot of the decisions, somebody who can give you a second opinion, someone who also can, if you're married or in a partnership, be a objective voice and someone who can kind of level the, the the field a little bit for the two of you as sometimes couples tend to disagree over financial choices uh, someone like a financial advisor can really step in and and offer some objectivity and facts to go along with the emotions but for you I'd say if you wanted to start looking at financial advisors obviously you'd have to start interviewing some talk to friends who are they working with colleagues. And there are websites out there like XY Planning Network and NAPFA.org. That's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Interview a few of them, narrow down your choices. Ultimately, you want to work with somebody that not just has a good track record and a solid business, but understands your needs and has perhaps other clients that are similar to you in the sense that they have similar goals, maybe they're at the same life stage and they can really relate and give catered advice to you. Now, shifting gears over to the audience and their questions and servicing them, our first question comes from Jennifer and she left an audio voicemail through SpeakPipe, which by the way, you can all do. It's really fun. Just head over to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and opt for SpeakPipe where you can leave and a voice question. And her question has to do with how to get on the same page with her partner when it comes to money. Here we go. Here's Jennifer. I love your podcast for niche and financial insight. My spouse is on board with our macro vision of our financial retirement plan, but how can I make our day-to-day conversations about finances more detailed without scaring him off with the numbers? I'm the sole breadwinner and take care of the bills and financial obligations, so I just worry that he would be lost if something happened to me. I'd love for your help. Thank you. And Jennifer, you are right to be worried that if something did happen to you, he would be lost. And the best way to get ahead of that is to start involving him in the bill payments, creating transparency around where the accounts are, the passwords, the usernames, where the bills go, how much things cost. Just because he's not making as much or any money right now in the relationship doesn't mean that he doesn't have the need to know what's going on in the finances of the relationship. doesn't mean that he should keep his head in the sand or that you should not introduce things to him. It may overwhelm him, but he's a big boy. He'll get over it, right? There are scarier things in life than just numbers. And just like you asked me, just like you brought up the topic with me that you have these concerns that if God forbid something happened to you, that he would not be able to step in and really take over seamlessly, bring that up to him. That's a very valid point. And it shows that you care and it shows that you are trying to you know just protect everybody and, and him. I think that's a very thoughtful position to have. And 
how you start to involve him in all of this is to do it slowly, you know, give him habits so that he is keeping an eye on certain accounts. He uh, maybe provides weekly reports or monthly reports. It's not that he has to do much, but it's really about getting in the know. And sometimes it's just a small tweak like that you're talking about money. Do you have scheduled weekly or monthly meetings? Maybe that's a good thing to start to do in the new year just to get the ball going and to make sure that you're both on the same page. But this has to happen. And I think that when there is income disparity, there's inevitably the spouse who makes less, who tends to veer off when it comes to making financial decisions and managing the money. How we make money, how much we make sometimes dictates the level of responsibility that we feel around managing the money. And then I would also suggest that with the new year upon us, your husband look at ways to bring in income. Maybe not going back to work full time if that's not something that is desirable or works for your family or it's not something that he wants to do. But seriously, look at ways for him to bring in some income. I think that will allow him to feel more of a financial player in the relationship. And frankly, it's going to level the financial security in the relationship. If you lose your job or if something does, God forbid, happen to you, at least there's another revenue stream coming in. Steve, what do you think? Oh, I definitely agree. I think that you know it's important that he... If he's, you know, if he's a stay-at-home dad, maybe that's why she's the, the sole breadwinner. There are still going to be times when he can do something on the side. I mean, the, the baby's going to nap at right. times. You know, the baby will go to bed and you can do stuff in the evenings. There's, there's always some kind of way you can try and find, you know, a, a source of income. And I do agree that it's really important that he, you know, start getting involved with that. I, I think it's really important to get involved just period. He needs to know what these what's going on? Because if something happens, he's going to get blindsided if he doesn't know. Yeah, Jennifer, just get those money meetings on the calendar, make it a recurring meeting so that you don't forget. So it doesn't slip through the cracks, have an agenda, do this at least for a couple of months. And that way I think you'll at least establish a good foundation, some additional awareness around what the bills are, how things get paid, what the financial obligations are every month. This is stuff every single member of the relationship, every couple should know about at the minimum. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you. And it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. All right, shifting gears to Tabitha's question. Steve, why don't you take this one? Tell us what's on our money mind. Sure. Tabitha writes, uh, she has $2,700 in credit card debt with a high APR. $7,600 in school debt, and $1,600 in other debt with 
0% interest. Uh, she has $7,600 in her 403B and $2,600 in savings. And she's asking if we have any ideas on what she could be doing to save more and pay off the debt. Well, the simple answer, Tabitha, is you either have to spend a lot less to shore up cash, to put that towards savings, towards debt, and or earn more, which is my favorite thing to do. I'd rather earn more than try to cut corners with my spending if it means giving up things that I love. But So let's focus on the savings variable first. Are you going through your bills and your budget and going through your expenditures and looking at leaks potentially? Are there subscriptions that you have that you no longer need to be subscribing to? Every little bit counts. $10 here, $20 there. Making sure that you're conscious of the expenses that you do daily that could be adding up to big bucks over time. I'm not going to say latte, but in New York, for example, it's Uber and you know all these automated apps that you get things delivered to your house, Amazon Prime and Seamless for food. I mean, it's very convenient, but it almost is convenient to a fault where you're using it more than you should and it ends up being a huge bite out of your budget. So that's the first assignment is to really examine your expenses and to be critical about how you're spending your money. And that debt, that $2,700 in credit card debt, I'm not sure what the interest rate is on that, but you say it's a high APR. So that should be the first order of attack. Of course, you're paying minimums on everything else, but whatever extra money you have every month, that goes towards the high APR credit card debt. If you get a bonus at work, if you get a birthday cash gift, if you get a tax return, that too can help to accelerate that pay down. Then you can try to earn more. I mean, this is the year to earn your darndest. I'm all about trying to help people find ways to bring in a side hustle, ask for a raise. Have you asked for a raise in a while? If not, maybe it's time to do that. Do you have skills that are going untapped that you can cash in on, that you can monetize? And then as far as that 403B at work, I would say if you're concerned about whether or not you're maximizing that, at the minimum, invest as much as you can to earn a match if there is a match. But the rule of thumb really is to put about 10 to 15% of your pay towards something like a 401k, a 403b. They're all very similar. Steve, I'm not sure if you have any debt. I actually do. I still have student loans from law school, um, but they are at such a low interest rate because I locked them in years and years ago that I don't pay any more because it doesn't make sense to pay more. Um, And I do have some credit card debt, um, which is sitting on a 0% interest rate, and I'm just saving the money in in an investment account to grow that and then pay it off when the 0% comes to an end. You know, I noticed that she's in a 403B, which means she's probably a teacher or maybe works at a nonprofit. But if she's a teacher, I'm wondering if she could do you know, a side hustle where she's tutoring or doing exam prep or doing work during the summer when school's out and devoting all of that money towards paying down the credit card. That is a great idea. Great observation. Yeah. If you've got summers free or if you have education as a background teaching, man, there are a lot of ways you can bring in some extra revenue as a tutor. And uh, tutor.com, in fact... I did some research on this a while ago, but they're a very popular website to connect with students of all ages if you are somebody who can teach a subject. And math and science tutors tend to earn the most. So if that is your area of expertise, Tabitha, there you go. Happy New Year. All right. Now, our next question comes from Dan, who is talking about college savings and his three-year-old son. Steve, you're a dad, right? I have a three-year-old son turning four in a couple months. 
All right, so you have much in common with Dan. And Dan writes in, he says he has a three-year-old son whom he hopes one day will desire a college degree. And by the way, I have a three-year-old son. (laughs) I have a three-year-old son. Why am I forgetting this? (laughs) Sorry, Evan, mommy loves you. Well, I'll offer a little bit of advice and then I'll pass the baton over to you, Steve. In our household, we started saving for our children's 529s pretty early on. For Evan, who's three and a half now, we started while I was pregnant. For Colette, we started pretty much the month she was born. In New York State, we have a really great 529 plan, at least historically. It's been really wonderful. And as New York residents, we qualify for a state tax benefit. Um, So go to collegesavings.org. You can choose any state's 529 plan and check particularly the one that you belong to, that state's 529 plan, and see if there are tax benefits to investing in it. And so that might uh, incentivize you to sign up for that one. So we have these two 529 accounts. We've been investing in them regularly. Do we run the risk of having too much saved perhaps by the time they are college ready and one of them or both of them decide, um, I don't want to go to school or one gets a scholarship? What happens then? I actually did an interesting interview this Monday with Abby Chow, who's the co-founder of a new site called collegebacker.com, and they're helping families save for college in a more uh, in a more efficient and easier way. They've allowed it so that they can invite family and friends to contribute to their 529 accounts. And I actually learned that if your child arrives at college and gets scholarship money and you've meanwhile saved all this money in a 529, that you can then withdraw that money penalty free. But if you don't need that money because your child's not going to college, then you can transfer the money to a different beneficiary. If Evan decides not to go to college, let's just say he decides to do something different, then we can transfer that money over to his sister. I could use the money. His dad could use the money. Uh, So there are ways to still take advantage of it. The projections as far as how much college is going to cost once our three-year-olds are ready for school, ready for university, that I I will defer maybe to you, Steve, if you have some updated numbers. But I have read that since the 1980s, the cost of college has been increasing anywhere from 6 to 8% every year, double, triple the rate of inflation. And if we extrapolate, then I'm guessing that we're going to have to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars for a four-year college degree, especially a private college degree. Tim and I are not going to foot all of the college expense. I mean, we'll try to do as much as we can as far as tuition and housing, but I do believe in children having some skin in the game. When it comes to college, whether that's paying for their own club fees, trips, um, obviously not all parents can afford tuition and room and board, but we're planning on it. And then everything else is going to be extra and Evan better have a job or just learn how to enjoy those ramen noodles. But a 529 has been, at least recently, the go-to way to save for college, if you're going to save for college. There are those risks of maybe your child deciding not to go to school, the money must be used for college-related expenses, or it's considered a unqualified withdrawal, and then you have to pay a penalty, plus, of course, taxes. Uh, So you could potentially lose some of that investment. I'm a fan, generally speaking. Steve, what do you think? Well, so when I got this question, it struck really close to home because I do have a three-year-old son and I am also thinking really long-term and what college is going to cost for him. 
So I did a little research and I found an article published by CNBC in 2012 projecting the costs of college in 2030, which is 13 years from now. So that's not too far from the 15 years that Dan is asking about. According to the article, a private four-year college will cost about 130000 a year, and a, a state school will be about 42000 a year. So to, to go to a private, a private school for four years, is that's more than a half a million dollars. That is a huge number. That's triple the cost of a public school education? Yeah. Steve, as a public school graduate, I kind of called BS on that. As I am I, I went my law. I went to the University of Connecticut for law school, public school. Loved it. Yeah, I mean, you want to go where you feel most connected. Some people want to go to that smaller school. A private college has a lot of benefits, but you have to really analyze the price tag. Is it worth it? What's the return on your investment? The good news is our listener Dan, who has asked a question here about five twenty nines. Sounds like he's getting a really nice head start. Wherever his child ends up, he will have more money than the rest of us. <laughs> As we know, you know, people sometimes don't have enough to save for college or they don't think to be proactive. So, Dan, uh, kudos to you for being proactive. Can I ask you a question, Farnoosh? Yeah, sure. So within the 529 plan, there's two choices. Mm-hmm. There's the prepaid college trust or the college investment plan. Um, one is paying the tuition for the future now. The other is more, is like a 401k for your education. Which one would you recommend? Well, the prepaid tuition plan, yes, you get to lock in future tuition rates at in-state public colleges at current prices. But that's, I mean, if you're concerned about whether or not your child is going to go to college or the fate of college in the future, and you know, you're talking 15 years down the road, who knows what's going to happen by then. A prepaid tuition plan is pretty rigid. And we know that for our listener who asked the question about what to do, if you don't know what the future holds, that would definitely not be something that I would recommend for him. And I think for most people, yes, you get to lock in those future tuition rates today and save a significant amount of money, but you really need to be certain that your child, A, is going to go to college and B, will want to go to the schools, the small portfolio of schools where that those tuition rates will apply. Uh, What if your kid wants to go out of state? What if your kid wants to go overseas? I mean, I, I would like to be able to give our children the option of choice when it comes to picking where they want to go. Now, as I said earlier, it has to make sense financially. They can't just go anywhere they want just because they want to go there. Um, It would have to be a good return on investment. But this is in the prepaid tuition plan I find very limiting for us. But I know parents who have done it. They've been successful and they've saved a boatload of money. I, I mean, I'm on this. I'm on the same page. I chose the college investment plan through the state of Maryland because um, that's you know where I live. Um, the uh, I, I looked at the prepaid college trust and it seems like it it has more options than I think it used to have. But I'm I, I'm like you. I'm still concerned about the restrictions that uh, uh, the college trust puts on you for where you're, where you're going to go and what you're going to do with that money. Agree. All right. Last but not least here, we have a question here from Dennis. Steve, would you mind reading it off so I can uh, take a drink of water? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So Dennis and his wife are working to pay off $8,000 in credit card debt and two car loans totaling $6,000. But they feel like something is always happening to set them back and lose confidence. Since July, they've had to put $3,000 into one of their cars and put 
$2,200 on a credit card for medical bills. The latest piece of the puzzle is trying to figure out how they'll afford daycare at $9,000 a year in a couple of months. They give us a little, little more information and tell us that, and Dennis tells us that he and his wife gross around $85,000 a year and they just bought a home in May. Well, congratulations to them on buying a home. Wow. So lots of moving parts. They've got a child on the way. Daycare is not inexpensive. They have what seems to be some mounting debt from medical bills to car expenses, credit card debt. I feel for them. Dennis did not mention how much they have in savings. My first instinct is if they don't have any money in savings, which may be why they are sort of perpetuating this cycle of debt, that they prioritize savings. You know, it's go time. You've got a child on the way. You've got huge expenses forthcoming, including childcare and, of course, other costs to raising a child today. So if Dennis and his wife have not started to really get on an automatic savings plan, this is the time to do it. And I may sound counterintuitive and say kind of shelf the debt for a little bit. Don't ignore the debt. But uh, if you can just bear by putting the minimums on those debts for a few months, six months, whatever, to be able to then more aggressively add to your savings account, I would be okay with that. And then once you get to a better, healthier place with savings, get back to being more aggressive with the debt and start with the higher interest rate loans. And that way, once you have savings, and if something else happens and other shoe drops, you can tap into savings as opposed to increasing your credit card debt. I actually kind of went a different direction. Um, I, I read the question and thought that they really needed a psychological boost. And so I was thinking more along the lines of applying the snowball method for debt reduction, where you're paying off your debts in order of smallest to largest, so they can get that psychological boost of seeing that first debt disappear. And if they're aggressive with paying the debt down before the baby's born, all of that money that they were putting towards debt payment would then be available for things like the daycare. So I kind of went a different direction, but I think both ways is, you know, makes total sense. It's just what you're comfortable with. I like your idea too, Steve. I think that that would be my advice. Although again, I don't know what the savings situation is. If they don't have savings, then I think that needs to be the priority. If they do have enough tucked away and they're just holding on to that for the arrival of the baby, they don't want to touch it. Even if a car breaks down or whatever, they want to like maybe use debt to solve those uh, financial crises, then sure, start with maybe something like a snowball method. They do sound overwhelmed and being able to attack even just the smallest balance, get it off your books right away quickly will give you the confidence to really go after the rest of your debt and really conquer it. Steve, thank you so much for co-hosting with me. So proud to call you a fellow Penn Stater, a fellow parent to a three-year-old. <laughs> and I really appreciate mostly that you came to co-host with a lot of perspective. You even asked me some questions and really gave our listeners some amazing feedback. So thank you to you. Wishing you a wonderful new year and um, keep in touch, okay? Thank you for having me and I would be happy to come and do this again anytime.